Hey everybody, welcome to episode 15 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back, welcome aboard, whichever it may be. Today, we will be talking to Katie Cannell. The topics for today's show may seem a little odd for an outdoors-based podcast. I'd like to think of this podcast as something that embraces all things active, and not just those typical activities that you'd think of, such as hiking and backpacking and climbing and things of that. Clearly, we're going to talk about those things a whole lot, but I also think there's a lot to pick up from those activities that are kind of on the periphery of the outdoors. And so today, we're going to be talking about martial arts and escape rooms, two really cool things that have nothing to do with each other other than today's guest is a very active, passionate participant in both. Pretty sure I don't need to explain what martial arts are to most people, I may need to explain what escape rooms are. If you haven't heard of these yet, they're getting really popular in cities all over the world. Usually you have 50 minutes to an hour. You are locked inside a room full of puzzles. And within that time period, you need to solve these puzzles, which will lead you to the means of escape from that room. Thus, the name Escape Room. Katie and I recorded this earlier this year in Man Biomedical Park in Valencia, which Biomedical Park doesn't make it seem like it's probably the most exciting of parks, but actually it was a really nice, very green park, very windy. So please excuse some of the windy audio. Let's get to it. Let's get to Katie Cannell. Let's go hear about martial arts, escape rooms, and the social impact of nunchuck proficiency. I'm Katie Cannell, and I am a giant nerd. I do everything from cosplay to video games to drawing, reading manga, and the sport for nerds is martial arts. Absolutely. And today you're sitting in some weird abandoned park in some medical center with me to talk about martial arts and your new obsession, escape rooms, right? Absolutely. Uh, Escape rooms are so cool. Are you doing one today, you said? Tomorrow. Yeah, down in downtown LA. So I guess we'll start out with the martial arts. How did you get into martial arts? So I got into martial arts um, because of my mom. I think I always wanted to do it. I mean, I was a child of the 80s, so I watched The Karate Kid and Ninja Turtles and what have you, and that definitely started me early. But when I was in middle school, I got bullied a whole bunch uh, during, you know, 6th, 7th, 8th grade. And then after that, uh, my mom had been saving up for hardwood floors in the house. And she decided to take that money and do something nice for me because the last three years of my life had been absolutely terrible. And she actually asked me what I wanted to do and enrolled me into martial arts down in, in the town that I was in. And I did it as a teenager for probably about three or four years, almost the entire time I was in high school and then uh, stopped for about 10 years and went back to it as an adult. Did you stop because you finally defeated your bully by doing a crane kick move? Is, is that what happened? <laughs> no, that would have been amazing. I ended up going to a high school where none of the bullies were at, so high school was much, much better. So you just randomly kick people's ass for fun then? Yeah, you know, that's what we do. We just run around hitting people. <laughs> right. That's what they teach you in martial arts, Yeah, right? just, just hit everyone. Abuse people. Yeah, just hit everyone. No, uh, I stopped because the studio I was at was, um, they call them Mick Dojos, where they're a franchise, and there's many of them all over the place. And you tend to get instructors that come and go when you're in an environment like that. And I had an instructor for like the first three years I was doing it that was really phenomenal, um, very inspirational. He was young, but he was a good role model. He was old enough that he still seemed like, a, like an adult figure but young enough that you know teenagers and kids could relate to him and he was really great but he ended up leaving to pursue a different career choice and the instructor that the company replaced him with was this guy who he was just everything when you say the words Cobra Kai that was essentially what we got in that studio he was the one who oh, like so you went from the hero and you became the villain oh it was terrible he would he would do things like the sparring matches would suddenly become brutal but if somebody he liked got hit in the face like immediately like they would be he would be all over that person like oh you have no control you have zero control despite the fact that this person like just totally kicked somebody in the knee and you're like but his face is way less you know vulnerable than his knee like 
this guy is having trouble walking and this guy has like maybe a black eye and the, before this guy came in that environment didn't exist at all nobody was kicking anybody in knees nobody was punching each other in the face if it happened it was most certainly an accident and this guy comes in and he's just like, he had a history of like being a guard at a prison and he was in the military and he was very just, uh, he was crazy. He was super crazy. Well, that's a good person to teach children how to fight each other. Yeah, I remember there was this event when um, my parents came down. They generally didn't join me down at the studio. They let me kind of do my own thing, which was really cool. But they came down for an event that we were holding and they met him. They hadn't met the new instructor. It had been a couple months since he came in. And they left going, oh, man, this guy, this, that guy's nuts. I'm like, I know, absolutely. But they didn't pressure me to quit. They're like, we want you to choose to quit. And maybe after six months of that, there was an incident, the sparring incident, where he blew up on one of the younger students who's maybe 16, 15, about the age I was, about accidentally hitting a guy in the face. And it was completely an accident, and everybody was fine. There wasn't even a black eye. It was just like, oh, no, his fist touched his face. And the guy exploded on him. And that was the night that I quit. And then after I quit, the same night, it was dominoes, four or five different people went into the office and said, we're also leaving, we don't, you know, support your behavior at all. And so I left, and I tried a couple other studios after that, but when you've been doing a certain style for a long time, especially when you're young, it's really hard to adapt into a different kind of dojo culture or a different style. And What I, style were you, were you doing then? I was doing Shaolin Kempo. And it wasn't necessarily completely traditional. When you think Shaolin Kempo, you probably think monks in China and that kind of stuff. Uh, Long bamboo staffs. Exactly, like a you know monkey style and, and what have you, drunken master, all that stuff. It was like that, but more of an American version, but not all the way to American Kempo, which was uh, which was founded by Ed Parker in. Hawaii, where Kempo really originated from for the for America, there was two people. There was Professor Sario, I could be wrong, uh, and then there was Ed Parker, who was training under this master in um, Hawaii. And then when it came to the mainland, uh, Ed Parker split off to do his own thing, and then Professor Sario, or whoever was above him, uh, split off and did their own. And I wouldn't say that style stayed completely traditional and definitely was influenced by America, but there was still roots to it. So that's what you were learning then, and then you left the crazy guy. How'd you get back into it? You were saying it's a little difficult to change style, so is that what you ended up having to do? I didn't actually. I went back and found another version of the exact same studio because, you know, it is a McDojo. They're all over the place. And so I ended up finding one locally in the town that I lived in at the time in uh, Santa Clarita. and ended up picking up the exact same style and the exact same system that I had been in before. So that was really cool. And it was surprising how much I remembered after 10 years of not doing it. It all came back really quick. You took a whole 10-year break. I did, yes. Okay, so that's, yeah, that's a sizable amount of time. Yeah, when when you're a kid and doing martial arts, the way that they teach you, and I mean, I came in as a teenager and I did the adult classes, but the way that they still approach things and teach things is different than the way that they deal with an adult. So I would highly recommend if, like, you're a person, an adult, who said, oh, well, I did taekwondo as a kid, or I did karate for a couple months as a kid, and you liked it, go back and try it again, because the things that you liked are probably still true of today. They'll just treat you like an adult as you're learning and it's not just a sport for kids, which a lot of people think like, oh, my son does that or my daughter does that or... It'll teach them discipline and then uh, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, right. they'll stop hitting their friends in school right. or they'll burn themselves out of energy and they'll come home and sleep. Well, you need that too. <laughs> right. They're too young to put in the military so we'll put them in martial arts so that we can discipline them. Exactly. Right. Yeah. We, we'll pay somebody else to discipline our child. It's usually what happened. So what is it about martial arts that you like? So you said you were bullied and you got into it and all, but clearly you liked it enough that 10 years later you came back to it and you still do it. So what is it that you like about it so much? There's a lot of really great benefits of it. I mean, the obvious ones of we need exercise and we need to get around and we need to move and sitting at a desk all day because I came definitely have a background of sitting at, in offices and sitting at a computer and being a nerd all day. And you need to get up and move. And so there's obviously that benefit but there's something more to it it's the biggest team sport that you'll ever do alone you go into a community um this dojo and a lot of places if you find a good place and that can be challenging you'll want to look around but if you can find a good place it's almost like a family inside of it where you make friends and you make relationships and bonds and you all sweat and you all work out together but you don't ever actually have to work with them you're you're not relying on them for your own progress if they mess up something that's their own journey and you still have your own journey and I really like that I liked being part of something but still being able to focus on myself and not worry what other people were doing it's it's interesting because I like to climb and that's kind of part of what I like about climbing too it's the same sort of thing 
with a lot of team sports, so much of it is about you and your team, whereas things like martial arts and climbing, a lot of it really is about self-growth, trying to improve yourself, but not at the expense of other people, kind of including them, but not entirely relying on them. Yeah. So yeah, I get, I get what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. There's things like partner work, where you'll be trying your techniques on each other, or sparring. You can't spar by yourself. You know, you can. It's shadow boxing, and it looks really silly, and it's only so effective. Do you do that a lot? I mean, when nobody's looking. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any videos online of you shadow boxing? No, and there will never be videos online of me shadow boxing. Uh, there'll probably be. There's probably videos out there of me punching people in faces at tournaments, which is fairly amazing. Oh, we we should do a compilation of just every time you've punched somebody in the face on video. It's true, and technically that was against the rules in my uh, in my system. Different systems have different rules. It's not your fault. You learned it as a kid from the Cobra Kai guy. It's true, and they really shouldn't block with their face. Exactly. <laughs> so you're also you're also proficient in weaponry, also, right? Right, yes, right. Uh, a couple of weapons. I can do bow staff. Uh, that was the first one I learned with. Cause it's Is it because of Donatello? You really liked Donatello, so you wanted to learn the bow staff? I was a Michelangelo fan, and I am terrible at nunchucks. I was at this workshop once, and we're all standing outside in a park kind of like this, big grass, open field, that kind of thing. And we all have nunchucks, and there, there's about four or five masters up front trying to show us the moves for it, and I am awful at nunchucks and so I'm all the way in the back and this is right before I'm about to get my black belt so I should not be awful at very many things at this point but I am so bad that they move me up to the front of the group where like the seven-year-olds are and so it's me surrounded by seven-year-olds trying to trying to do these nunchucks and like every four minutes like a master walking by to show me something and like pat me on the back and say oh you're doing great like that patronizing kind of don't give up little girl you've got it speaking of nunchucks for some reason in the 80s right during the big ninja craze with all the American ninja movies and all those things nunchucks got really popular and every kid had nunchucks and no one knew how to use them so I have all these memories from a kid of just everyone hurting themselves with nunchucks oh yes absolutely and if you even with the foam ones those ones can still hurt but I've seen many children with like the wooden ones who just completely nail themselves in the face or the leg or the balls or you name it and they peg themselves and it's the funniest thing. Why were parents so dumb in the 80s? Why would they give everyone nunchucks? Like everyone think, as a kid I knew had nunchucks and a BB gun and maybe a machete. I kind of feel like uh, kids maybe should still have that and it'll help you know get rid of like the really awful ones and then all we have are the ones who are at least coordinated <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're recommending survival of the fittest based on nunchuck proficiency is yeah i think we're on to something saying? yeah absolutely but yes yeah, so nunchucks were not a thing that i've ever been good at i, I can't say that even past that workshop i have gotten much better so but, seven-year-olds were better is what you're saying seven-year-olds oh, are better than yes. you at nunchucks even the 80s kids who were hurting themselves with nunchucks were probably <laughs> better, than better than me. i would have been weeded out if we had implemented my nunchuck you know well then you should be happy that we have not yes yes that would be terrible but yes so, so both staff i was i'm pretty good at wushu blade the blade that when you use it it makes that like crazy um thunderclap sound if, if you had like a tin sheet that you were you were shaking uh that one i'm really good at that one's fun because it involves like jumping and rolling and stabbing and and doing crazy flying crescent kicks that's really cool when you train with that clearly you're not going to train with a sharpened usable version so um, are there like wooden versions or how do you train with that weapon so not for the wushu blade there's other things for when you use like the broadsword you can use a wooden broadsword that doesn't tend to be a big difference but the wushu blade is so dependent on being able to make that sound and the quick light whipping movements of it that you don't really have a substitute but you can get one with more of a blunted edge they don't file it down now keep in mind that it still gets pretty paper thin towards the tip so I have while training absolutely gotten myself with my wushu blade and it's, it's cut me and it's not too bad uh, but if you're not careful careful you could end up with stitches do you spar with it at all or it's strictly for for training and strictly and for training and for show and for forms and things like that both staffs you can you can spar with but something like a blade that gets a little more dicey. It's not like fencing where you, you have some protection. Do you, do you recommend giving seven-year-olds blades and then weeding them out that way also? That would be an idea. But <laughs> <laughs> you, you aren't necessarily saying that you recommend that, but you're not saying that you don't recommend <laughs> In all seriousness, uh, start your kids on the bow staff or the really foam-padded nunchucks. 
you actually have to graduate from something like a bow staff before they let you touch a blade in most uh, systems. My favorite weapon that I've used are the hook swords. And those things are crazy. They have the long handle that hooks at the end, as you would expect. And they also, where you grab onto the blade, there's these two little crescent moon shapes above your hand. And it kind of looks like a Klingon weapon. It's kind of rad. And you use two of them at the same time, which requires an immense amount of coordination. You do things where you're um, flipping around in front of you and then behind you again, over your head. There's a part in one of the forms I have where you actually hook them together and swing one with the other and then catch it. It's just very showy and flashy and you usually put flags on on the end of them so it makes this really cool like flag flapping in the wind kind of sound while you're playing around with them it's really cool it's interesting because in a lot of ways i did dance for a few years long ago it seems like a lot of martial arts and a lot of dance are very similar just one is strictly for aesthetic purposes and the other is kind of like aesthetics and practical use i think that's probably true there's some some martial artists who would say absolutely not because they hate the association between martial arts and dance because they're looking for power in their forms or aggression or to make it look like a fight. But then you look at some of the, the other styles, like, for example, Wushu, all of the forms that I learned from that, and if you watch their forms um, on YouTube or something, it's very dance-like. It's very flowy and smooth and beautiful. And so I, Even a little gymnastics in there, too. Oh, yeah. You say? Yeah, acrobatics, for sure. 100%. So I think that they, you're onto something that they are very similar aesthetically in a lot of ways. So if you get a good ballet dancer, you could maybe train her to be an ultimate killer. Yes, she's probably flexible enough to do it uh, and fast enough and probably very strong also. Yeah, it's like, I mean, it's the same thing when you teach football players to, to do dance because it helps them be a little bit faster. Yeah. I, I will say when I was doing dance, uh, it was the best exercise I've ever done in my life were the few years that I did dance. I, I never done anything prior or since then that was better exercise. I can believe it. It's it's all cardio all the time. <laughs> so you are currently a black belt. I yes? am currently a black belt. Yes, uh, I've been a black belt for a few years now. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about how you go about moving through the various belts. So one of my favorite sayings is that a black belt is a white belt that didn't quit. And what that really means is it takes dedication and a lot of time and a lot of patience. And a lot of times people don't have those things in the right combination. And they either get bored or they get frustrated or they give up. And that happens a lot. And so to to get to black belt, it's largely perseverance and also a lot of dedication because you need to practice. And a lot of people come in believing that the time that you put in the studio or the dojo is enough time to get your black belt. And if you're really good, you're really smart and you're really sharp, it's doable. It's possible. It could happen. But most of the time you need to maybe practice a little after work on the days that you aren't going into the studio or practice on the weekend or have a friend, a partner that you've met in class that you you get with every once in a while outside of it. And I'm not talking you have to do this every day. It's not insane. But a couple of times a week, a couple extra hours, that makes the big difference between getting a black belt in say five or six years or getting it in 10. It can, it can make all the difference. When I came back from my 10-year break, I pretty much had to start all over. I remembered a lot, but a lot of the muscle memory wasn't there. The memorization of specific moves and forms weren't there. And I would say it took me around three to four years to get my black belt. If I had come in just starting as an adult, it probably would have been about the five to six. Kids are way different. Kids can take forever because they're kids, you know, they learn different things. And I don't necessarily condone giving a regular black belt to an underage kid because they don't understand the responsibility that comes with knowing all the things that you know. You know how the body works and how to break bones. But with that, you also need to know the responsibility of it. So most of the time, kids will get a junior black belt and then test again when they get old enough, usually anywhere between 16 to 18, depending on where you're training at, for a regular black belt. And that's when you're recognized as being a full-on black belt and you've, you've earned that right. Right. I imagine part of it is gaining the responsibility to have that power, but restrain yourself from using it unless completely necessary. Absolutely. I joke around a lot about, you know, oh, I punch people in the face. Well, that's not really true. I don't go around punching people in the face. My husband might tell you. What if they deserve it? Are they attacking you or hurting you in any way? Or are you defending somebody that can't defend themselves? Those are pretty much it. (laughs) I would say depending on if you get the right lawyer, you could say yes to all of those things no matter what they're doing. Right. But being a black belt means that you morally understand the difference between 
when a lawyer in Los Angeles says and what um, what is actually correct. <laughs> and, but yeah, so it's just there's a certain response we deal with. If you find any studio that's giving 10-year-olds black belts, like for real black belts, run. Go somewhere else. Don't ever, ever step foot in that place again because they don't really understand what it is that they're teaching people and the potential that it has to, to hurt people or affect this person's life. The, either somebody who might get hurt from it or the person who might do the hurt. I imagine there are multitudes of misconceptions that people have about martial arts and probably some that you had as a kid watching things like The Karate Kid and stuff. If you just had to pick some things right now and say, look people, these are the things I wish you would all stop thinking is true about martial arts, what would those things be? We like to fight all the time and that's all we do and that we're violent people. That's not actually true. We joke around because we're surrounded by it and it is punching and it is kicking. But the true heart of martial arts is learning how to fight so you never actually have to fight. It's learning to be smart and to stay out of bad situations and bad places. It's learning to be aware of your surroundings so you know when you're in a dangerous place that maybe you shouldn't be there or maybe you should just be on high alert. It's learning all the smart things and the common sense things and all the responsibility never ever to have to punch somebody or kick somebody or hurt somebody unless it's to save your life or somebody else's. And there's a big misconception that you shouldn't do martial arts because it'll make you violent or it's the only people who do martial arts are violent people. That is absolutely incorrect. I've never met more peace-loving pacifist people than I have in the in the world of martial arts. Do you find that it has given you like a greater confidence like perhaps earlier in your life in certain situations or maybe you would have felt really uncomfortable now that you know you can protect yourself you maybe feel more comfortable or just more aware or just more confident in general do you feel like it's made that change or no oh absolutely uh, i mean i started young as a kid so it's hard to really look back and go oh it made this big difference but i can still see that coming from a kid who was bullied and not very confident and was a tomboy largely because i liked wearing baggy clothes because it didn't draw attention to me and that kind of stuff to a person who I am today, who's, I can wear wherever I want, my hair can be however I want, I can walk wherever I want. When I go to, there are times where I have to walk through bad neighborhoods and it's not nearly as scary as it used to be because I know what I know in order to do that. Uh, and it also gives you the confidence to see people and talk to people who you know might need something like the martial arts. There was a girl I worked with a while back who had been being stalked for a long, long time. Uh, hadn't escalated to any incidences yet, but it was definitely on its way to being a major, major problem. And she was scared. She was really, really scared. She's like, I don't know what to do if this person ever shows up in my house. I've tried talking to the cops and it's not doing anything. What the hell do I do? I said, okay, let's go to lunch one day and I'll show you some self-defense techniques that you can do in case you need it. And I'm also going to recommend you go to the studio and do the free month of lessons. Worst comes worse, you come out of it and you, you're a little bit smarter and a little bit wiser. And she's still doing martial arts and I've had lunch with her since and she told me that it completely changed how she feels about this person and now the situation is completely different. She went from having a victim mentality to being in charge and now she's not being stalked anymore because it's not fun. She's not playing into it. She's not the victim. And so I think it does give you confidence, especially as a woman, to take charge of your situation wherever you might be, whether you're being stalked or just walking through a seedy part of town. It gives you a lot more confidence to know that you're going to be okay, and even if something does happen, you're going to get out of it. We know there are martial arts places all over, and some of them are probably not the best places to go. So how do you weed out the good ones from the bad ones? That is a great question, and that's something that I've had to do since I've left my old studio and find a new place to go train at. There are certain things that you want to look for. How early do they start training people? Even if you're an adult going into this, are they actually trying to train one-year-olds in martial arts? That seems like it's probably not a good idea. Their payment structure will actually tell you a lot about how they value their students. If they are demanding that you sign a one-year contract, how to get out of the contract seems really shady. Like there, It almost seems like a gym structure. That's probably a bad sign for that studio because they're not seeing you as people, they're seeing you as dollar signs. Uh, try out classes. Almost every place you will go to will let you try a class. If you find a place that doesn't let you try a class and just wants you to sign up, leave because they don't believe in what they're actually teaching. One class isn't going to hurt anything. They want you to sign a waiver, that's fine. That's covering them in case you fall into a wall and break your elbow, <laughs> you know. 
but try a class and see how they treat their students. And it'll differ between person to person for what you're looking for. If you're looking for a hardcore MMA gym or something like that, then absolutely it's going to be a different atmosphere than the family dojo. I tend to like places that are more family orientated where it's either somebody who's there actually owns at least part of the studio or maybe it was handed down in the family. I tend to find those places to be more sincere and care about your well-being and your individual training. They'll give you usually a little more attention and help you reach your own personal goals and also tend to be more open if you want to jump in on an extra class here and there, which is always nice. So payment structure makes a big deal on, you know, big difference when you're looking at a place. Does it tend to be fairly affordable or can it be kind of pricey? It can totally be kind of pricey. The place that uh, I was just training at, which was a Kaju Kempo place, which is a mixed martial arts from Hawaii, has Kempo in it, has karate, has a little bit of Jiu Jitsu, a little bit of Chinese boxing. It's a little bit of everything. That place was very affordable. It was family run, uh, but I think it was more affordable because the part of town it was in. It was down in Inglewood, which tends not to be a very affluent neighborhood. And that was, you know, maybe $100 a month, and that's pretty reasonable in the martial arts world. The only place you're going to find cheaper is like a community center, like a YMCA or something like that. There's places that run an average of $150, $200. I've seen and walked out of a place that told me their prices were $300 for two classes a week. And I said, that is absolutely insane. I've never seen it that high. You're probably going to average around a 150 to 200 in most places in some place like Los Angeles. Does that include for children or is there a different price structure usually for children versus adults? Usually there's family discounts. So it, one child might be in at that rate, but the next child be like half off or some type of discount. I mean, and I wouldn't say usually. It can really depend and vary on the dojo. Sometimes it's less, but sometimes it's more because the kids might be in there five times a week, whereas adult classes are only offered twice a week. So it could be different. All right, so we're going to switch gears now. We've been talking about kicking people's asses. Now we're going to talk about your new obsession, escape game. So tell us what escape games are because I don't think they're in that many cities yet. So a lot of people might not know what they are. More and more every day, they're starting to hit the US big. Okay, so escape games, or as I like to call them, escape rooms, started, I believe, overseas in places like Japan and China, Budapest, a bunch of places like that. In a nutshell, you get locked in a room or a series of room, not for real, you can get out, don't freak out. (laughs) But you get locked in a room and there are various puzzles and riddles that you have to solve that will lead you to various keys or codes and other things that will help you unlock doors or the door in order to get out. So you're trying to basically solve one giant interlocking puzzle that will allow you to escape the room and be victorious. How many of these have you done so far? I've done close to a dozen now, which I am nothing compared to my former boss at one of my previous jobs who has done over 50 in, I think, six different countries. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, because there aren't that many just located in Los Angeles, are there? There weren't, but there are now. There's probably, last I looked, and they change because sometimes a room will get old and stale. Enough people have done it that it's not garnering the same amount of interest and they switch out rooms and, and create different rooms. But right now, I think there's maybe somewhere between 20 and 30 that you can do in Los Angeles alone. And they tend to be themed, right? They, in a wide range of themes. So some, from what I've seen, some have horror themes, some have like a 1950s noir theme or any number of different themes, right? Yep, absolutely. So I've done everything from horror themes where you've been like locked in a basement or a creepy murder shack or stuff like that to ones where uh, I'm a detective in the 1950s and we're all trying to figure out and solve the case. I've been in a spaceship one. I've been in Area 51 one where you are trying to find the lab with the alien and rescue the alien and get out of the lab. I've been in a bank, bank vault one where you're trying to like steal things, which is cool. They get really creative in the theme. So a lot of people think that these might be all horror. That tends to be the the reaction I've gotten by people. Like, I don't want to do something scary. Well, that's okay. You don't have to do something scary. But if you are looking for something scary, I know this one where they put a bag over your head in the beginning and shuffle you into a cage and it's super freaky. Have you done that one? (laughs) Yes, that was the second escape room I ever did. That one is the basement in Silmar. And I won't give too much away. That's the problem with talking about escape rooms is you kind of don't want to give away the puzzles. But I will tell you that the first thing they do is put you in this tiny little hallway closet where you watch a video about tourists who are getting kidnapped in this foreign country. 
and then they make you put a bag over your head and it's clean the guy the guy who runs the escape room his mom washes them every day he told me uh, but you put it over your head and then like they shuffle you into this cage where you're crammed in with like eight of your closest friends and it's super freaky and it absolutely sets the, the mood for for getting your adrenaline up so did you sincerely feel scared during that one Yes, not as much as I did during the purge, which is no longer running. So I can tell you all the details about the purge if you got, if you want. And the purge was based off the movie, The Purge, um, the second one. And that one was the first, it might have been because it was the first escape room I was doing, but also it was terrifying. You get put in this double wide trailer, it's two trailers linked together, and on the inside it looks like a house. And basically the theme is uh, you have one hour, usually that's the theme, you have an hour or 45 minutes. Some of them run an hour and a half, but that's rare. But you have about an hour to solve all the puzzles and get out of this place before Big Daddy comes home and murders you because it's the time of year where everyone can get away with murder and crime is completely legal, so it weeds out the population. And they did an excellent job conveying that. And at the end of it, at the very end, we didn't solve all the puzzles. We failed. So you were murdered. Oh, we yes, we failed so hard. We found we found out later that we hadn't even solved like six of the ones that were left like there were over six left that we hadn't solved we were nowhere close to surviving and we end up getting shuffled into this little closet thing and the girl the actor sometimes there's actors sometimes there's not but the actor who's playing the daughter of big daddy tells us get in this closet and hide hide i'll protect you and so we're in this closet and there's these loud noises and a countdown and everything happening and it's me holding onto this little door handle, another girl holding on this door handle, and then the two other people we came with holding onto us for dear life. And the end comes with like this big sound and, and strobe lights, and we all start screaming. And we must have looked like complete idiots because we're screaming in like this little closet in a trailer with strobe lights going on and loud noises. And at the far end of the closet where we couldn't see, this like roll up door pops up, and it's just a guy, a normal guy, sitting there going, Get out, you lost. And we're standing there going, Ah, holding the door, freaking out. Oh, it must have been a great story to tell people. But yeah, I was genuinely scared in that one. That one scared the crap out of me, especially at the end. I imagine, too, part of the enjoyment of these has to come down to the people that you go with. If you decide that you're going to play along and role-play the thing, you probably have a great time. But if you bring someone who's just like, this isn't scary, or someone who doesn't want to buy into it, they probably would ruin the whole experience. Yes, that's happened to me before. So when you go to escape rooms, I recommend getting as many of your friends to come with you as you can. You usually have to book these ahead of time. So make sure you get commitments ahead of time. Everybody buys their ticket or you have one person put it all on their credit card so you secure the spots because otherwise you end up with strangers. And strangers can be a luck of the draw. Right, they could be awesome, or they could be the opposite of awesome. Yeah, when we did The Detective, which is an escape room in L.A., it's the 1950s one, which was really one of the best I've been in. Very smart puzzles, great ambiance, nice actors, that kind of thing. I highly recommend it. We ended up with a group of only four of our friends, and I think there were eight uh, strangers, a group of eight, and those guys were amazing. They were puzzle solvers. All of them were like coders for various companies. I think a couple of them worked for Google. You know, we had really smart, really into it individuals, and not all of them had done escape rooms before. We had some newbies in there, and that was fine, but they were all into it and in the spirit of solving puzzles and all about teamwork and communicating and speaking out loud. Because when you find something, you have to tell it everyone you found it because the other part of that puzzle somebody else has probably already seen or knows something about so that's great and that was an instance where it could have gone really bad but it, they were phenomenal and we were good and we all meshed well and we got out of the room in almost record time it was great now there was a time when i was traveling by myself up to the bay area where there's an escape room several escape rooms up there under the company omniscape and their escape rooms are really very well put together, nice ambiance, the whole shebang. They're good experiences. But I ended up in a group of 10 in just me. And the 10 all knew each other. They were there for somebody's birthday. And I got put in this group and almost none of them had done escape rooms. And they were the type who, when they didn't understand something, they bickered and got frustrated with each other instead of going, okay, let's take a step back and look at this. And so it was literally like an hour of like watching children bicker with each other and they were adults but it was it was not the best experience I have we obviously did not get out of it and they were just kind of awful to be around <laughs> nice individuals like as people really awful to work with like 
I, I would not recommend them to go to many more escape rooms or their friendships will all disintegrate. So thankfully that wasn't your first experience because that maybe would have ruined it. Absolutely, you, right? yeah. Uh, I had a coworker who went to an escape room once that was very poorly run. It was at a convention. Uh, they're actually starting to put them in at conferences and conventions as like neat little viral experiences that will hopefully garner lots of attention. And he went to one run by National Geographic that was supposed to be like um, a below zero escape room. So it's supposed to be really cold and interesting, but it wasn't run well. And they kept mixing um, English speaking groups with non-English speaking groups because it was at South by Southwest. So there was a ton of different types of people there. When you're in a puzzle where you need to talk to each other and nobody speaks a common language, it becomes incredibly hard. And so he, that was his, his first experience. And it took me maybe six months after that to, to get him to another escape room because he was so determined that these things were stupid and that they're all chaotic and not run well and they're impossible to do. And so, yeah, finding a good escape room and going with the right people in particular is going to make the difference whether or not you fall in love with these or you decide that you hate them. Of the themes that you've gone through so far, which are the ones that you really, really like? So definitely, I've talked about a little bit already, the detective one. That was by far one of the best escape rooms I've been in and it had everything from like the detective desk with the lamps to like filing cabinets and safes and pictures with puzzles on them and a crime map and really interesting intriguing like word and number puzzles in it and combination lock puzzles that one was really phenomenal they just from the ceiling to the floor it looked like you had stepped into the 1950s and you were this detective and his team trying to solve this thing and then there was another one that I did very recently that was spaceship theme. That one was amazing because you walked in and it was like you were in this this almost retro feeling spaceship. The floor was like metal and plastic and there were cables and wires and a giant control panel and locks and safes and magnetic puzzles and all sorts of stuff and seats as if you were going to go sit down and rock it off into space in it in any moment. The only thing about that room that was a little bit difficult was because there was so much plastic and metal, we kept getting static electricity shocks when we touched anything or anyone. We would go to do something and it would just be zapped. Like halfway through, we were used to it. We're like, all right, whatever, we got zapped Look, again. Look, that, that's what happens when you're in space. <laughs> you get shocked. People don't talk about this a lot, but being in space, you just constantly electrocuted. Yeah, so definitely wear non-conductive shoes and material if you go to that <laughs> one. That one was, uh, I believe, in downtown LA also. And then the last one that I really remember, that I take it back, there's two, but they were held by the same company. I forget the name of it, something like The Vault or something like that. I can't remember, but it's in Monterey Park in, in Los Angeles, and they have three rooms. They have the Bank Vault, which was okay. They have the Area 51 room, which was amazing. There are, like, air ducts you have to crawl through and stuff, oh, nice. which is super cool, and, like, hidden stairways and, and, and things like that that just really brought it to life. They committed to the, you are crawling through a government facility and trying to, to find the alien theme, like, to the fullest extent. And in the same place, they had another room, um, the Magician's Lair, and, or study or library, something like that. And that one was phenomenally complicated, but also really cool to look at. It had this giant clockwork puzzle you had to solve, and it was like, you know, analog clocks with hands you had to move around that eventually turned on a light, you know, and showed you things, and it was just so complex, there are puzzles, and wooden puzzles, and black lights, and having to touch skull heads to read books, and you really felt like you, you might actually be in some magician's little castle somewhere, and that was really cool. So what's your score right now? How many have you failed? How many have you successfully completed? I think I'm like 8 out of 12 right now. Some of the some of them just really stumped me or I was with groups like up in the Bay Area that just we were not team working. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm more than half. Yeah, well that that's actually pretty good 8 out of 12. And you say you're doing one tomorrow, correct? I am. The theme of that one is The Cavern. This is by the same place and I want to say it's Escape Room LA, but I could be wrong. But they did the detective one that I've talked about and they just opened The Cavern. And so, in theory, you're supposed to be underground in this cavern seeking, like, ancient puzzles and ruins and treasure. And I'm really excited to see how they turn a building, like an office space, on the third floor in a building downtown of L.A. into a cavern. That's going to be really cool to see how they manage that. Yeah, that should be pretty interesting. So you're going to be on the third floor of a building pretending you're underneath the earth. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that should be pretty interesting. Yeah. If I remember correctly, and maybe you decided against this, you were talking about starting a blog or something where you review these or discuss them or something. Are you going to do that? Yes. The framework is built, and I have one review up. But before I announce it to the world, I'd really like to get a couple more reviews up. And what I'm really struggling with is how to tell people about escape rooms without ruining the escape room when they go to it. The first review I wrote was about The Purge, which was great because it's already closed. But these could be years before they close. People really want to know how the puzzles work. And escape rooms are very sensitive to not giving away how their rooms work. They want people to come in and enjoy that experience and be surprised. Do you know if they change their puzzles periodically so that people can't come in and have a cheat sheet? They don't. I've, um, I personally haven't repeated a puzzle room, but I do know that um, my coworker I mentioned who had done over 50, he's gone back to some of the ones that he's failed so he can complete them. And they are exactly the same. And I mean, that makes sense because these are such comprehensive beasts of things like the puzzles are so complex that to change one you would have to change everything and so I get why they don't do that but it does make it very hard to share the experience and still allow people to go so I'm struggling right now with how to tell people about how great and amazing these are and still having it be so they can go and experience it. And I've thought about maybe spoiler blockers where you have to highlight the text to read it. But I still want to be very respectful to the escape room because they might not want that information online. And so once I overcome that hurdle and figure out how, how to talk about these in a way that is still informative and helpful to people who want to know about them and still respectful to the escape rooms, then I'll really get going on that. It'll probably be a little while before this goes live. So if the site's up by then, I'll get you to give me the URL and share that with the listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else you need to say about escape rooms? Anything else you need to get out? Go to escape rooms. They are fun. <laughs> you absolutely have to do the one. If you only ever do one, that'll be enough for me. But I can promise you, the moment that you go to a good one and the moment that you escape or even get really close to it, oh, you're going to be hooked. You're going to go back. The worst thing in the world is getting so close to getting out of that room, knowing that you're maybe five minutes away from solving the last puzzle and not doing it, that you will have to go back to either that room or another one to prove yourself. They are addictive. All right, so you know me. We used to work together. I haven't done any. Which one should I go do? Go to the, de- the detective. The detective one? Yes, the okay. detective. And, and where's that one? That one's in downtown LA, you said? Yep, that one's in downtown LA. The building is super creepy when you walk up to it. You have to use a call box to even get in the building, find the secret hidden elevator, go up to the third floor, and wait in the hallway where it's freaky. And then they'll eventually come out and get you. It's a really weirdly set up building, but that is not representative of the experience that you're about to walk into. For as janky as that building is, the experience inside that room is phenomenal. All right, I'm going to go do that one, and then... Uh... When I release this, I'll talk about how, how it was. Absolutely. And, and, and whether it was a good recommendation or not. Oh, it will be. I'd bet lunch on it. <laughs> you, you bet lunch on it? Is that, is that what you're betting? Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you very much. And if you finish that website, let me know. Will do. And, uh, and I'll link to it. And then I'll probably link to some, uh, some of the other escape rooms or uh, yeah, places where people can find them. There's a directory that I can show you. Oh, yeah. Great. Mm-hmm. Send me that. Yeah. Cool. All right. So that was it. Fairly painless, right? Yeah, that was fun. Got to nerd out. If you're curious about how Katie's experience with the cavern, the one she was going to be doing shortly after the interview, went... Well, here is Erica to tell you, in Katie's words, how the cavern was. Erica? Escape Room LA remains my favorite establishment to do rooms, though I've met some strong contenders since the podcast was recorded. The cavern itself was a very challenging but immensely fun room. Much like the detective, the puzzles are non-linear, so everyone can try working on different puzzles or help out on the same one. I really felt like I was in some weird underground space despite being on the second floor of a building in downtown Los Angeles. Ultimately, we didn't escape, but it turned out we were a mere three puzzles out of over a dozen to go when we ran out of time. Since recording this interview, Erica and I have done two different escape rooms, including that same cavern. Despite Katie's recommendations of doing the detective or going with just a group of personal friends, because of logistical reasons, we instead ended up having to do the cavern, and it was me, Erica, and 
our friend Mike Hastings, who was on last week's podcast, and seven people we didn't know. But we got super lucky, and those seven people were awesome. And we also did not escape from the cavern, but we were apparently one minute away from escaping. We were solving the final puzzle, opening the last key, which would have allowed us to escape. And so here's Erica once again to tell us how she felt about the cavern and the other escape room that we've done. Enigma Escape Rooms Secret Temple. Erica, how do you like the escape rooms? So far, I've liked the experience of doing escape rooms. The cavern was probably more enjoyable to me just because it had a very big variety of puzzles. Each puzzle could affect another one. You didn't necessarily have to complete them in a specific order. While we were doing the temple, there were certain things that we were informed you shouldn't do until you got to a specific point or until you had a clue that told you to do that. And I'd rather that escape rooms don't have that just because you never know when you might come across something and inadvertently ruin things for yourself. The cavern was also pretty cool because they committed 100% to the idea of a cavern. Once you go in there, you have different things that you have to do to experience it like being in a cavern. And although the escape room for the temple had this cool story to it, there wasn't much temple-like stuff in it until you get past a certain spot. As somebody who actually does enjoy things like temples, I was looking forward to that and was a little let down. I can say that we did escape from the temple. It took us, what, 45 minutes? Yeah, I think so. One thing I will say about both of them that is really cool is the way that the rooms work, and Katie mentioned this in the interview also, is solving one puzzle generally gives you a piece that you need to solve a future puzzle. So say there are a dozen puzzles overall in that particular room, you will have to solve all of them. If you do not solve one puzzle, you will not escape. And so solving one particular puzzle here may give you a piece that you need to solve another puzzle that maybe needs three separate pieces from three previous puzzles. It's a very interesting experience in that regard. I think they are both good, but quite different. I'd also like to add that Although we've only completed one, I don't know how other escape rooms end. When you end this one, you kind of just end up in like a little lobby that kind of diminishes the thrill a bit because you have this theme going through the room and then it's like, oh, there's no like ending theme for it. Yeah, one thing I will say is so far in our experience, they tend to either the time's up and they say you lost or you win and they say you won. It'd be nice if the theme was carried through into the end because it's fun to get into the theme and pretend that you're actually in that experience. And it does kind of weaken it when you open the final door and there's just a person standing there that says, oh, yay, you did it. As opposed to perhaps some sort of chamber you walk into and maybe some sort of actor or something, something that gives you a sense that you have actually completed this in a thematic way. I will give props to Escape Room LA who we did the cavern with because throughout the whole process you have a countdown going on to let you know how long before you run out of air. As soon as you lose, once you run out of air, there's like lights that go off, there's a loud beeping sound basically telling you you're dead. One thing that is cool that for both of the ones that we've done is they do have an actor in the room with you the cavern, it was a person who was basically like like an inspector. Yeah. And then in the secret temple room, there was basically like a monk type person in the room with us. And these people, they kind of make sure that you're not breaking anything. Because apparently that is a problem. There are people that will try to rip things up off of whatever they are attached to and break it because for some reason they think... That's how you find the clues. They're also there to maybe give you little nudges in the right direction if you are having a lot of trouble solving something. And they're there to let you know how much time is remaining and kind of encourage you to get through it. So having actors along does improve the experience and it makes it a little more immersive. You have anything else to add, Erica? No, I think I'm good. All right, you can go away. Bye, Erica. So rude. 
Okay, folks, head on over to gogetoutside.com slash podcast and check out the show notes for this episode, episode 15. You'll get photos of Katie with martial arts weaponry and cosplaying various characters. You'll also come across a number of links. If you were interested in escape rooms after hearing this show, there will be a link to a directory of escape rooms all over the world, a link to Katie's review site where you can read about which rooms are better than others, and also a link to some of her cosplay. So if you're interested in some of her cosplay, if if you're curious and seeing some of the photos of some of the fictional characters she's dressed up as, go check that out as well. If you'd like to talk to us here at the show, there are a number of things you can do. You can email us at go at butcherbirdstudios.com or you can pick up your phone, you can dial some numbers, and you can call and not reach us personally, but reach our voicemail and leave us a message of three minutes or less. You could call 818-925-0106. Most importantly, what you should do. If you are not currently subscribed to the show and you like what you've heard, stop by iTunes, Stitcher, whatever, tune in, whatever you're using to listen to this, subscribe to the show. And since you're already doing that, you may as well rate and review it. On next week's show, a good friend of mine, Alden Anderson, you've heard his name come up in multiple episodes of this show if you are a loyal, devoted listener. He grew up in a non-standard American way. He was raised in a very sheltered way in a not very mainstream religion. At 21, he left this religion and began exploring the outdoors. Come back next week, hear him talk about all of his foolish exploits in his early 20s, traveling, backpacking, rafting, and eventually discovering Canyoneer. Next week. See you then. <laughs>